0: Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation
1: on the Indo-Pacific century brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders.
0: Thanks, Rich. Today, we are very excited to be joined by a leading expert on transatlantic issues and a good friend, Julianne Spith. Julie and her family spent the last year in Berlin at the Bosch Academy, where she was a Weizsager fellow. While she was there, she spent a lot of time thinking not only about transatlantic issues, the critical relationship between the United States and Europe. But increasingly, uh, Julie started to focus on the relationship
1: between Europe and Asia, and particularly in China, and that's what we're going to explore today. And Julie's got a distinguished career in the executive branch as well from 2012 to 2013. 13. She was the Deputy National Security Advisor to the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, advising the Vice President on a number of foreign policy and defense issues. She also worked at the Pentagon and the Office of Secretary of Defense, serving for three years as the Principal Director for European and NATO policy. Julie is a contributing editor to Foreign Policy, where she co-edits a blog entitled Shadow Government, which focuses on US foreign policy in the Trump era. That must be fun. Never,
2: never a dull moment.
1: Yeah, never yeah. a dull moment. So,
0: Julie's a great friend, and thanks so much for joining us, Julie. So, thank you. So, you just come back. You've been away. You've had this wonderful one-year sabbatical. I think we have to begin at what it's like. So, you, you so you're you're moving back into your old house in Northwest Washington. You're back in your old haunts. Uh, what's it like?
2: Well, it's a mix of emotions. It's uh, bittersweet, I guess would be the word. Uh, we're neck deep in boxes. It's obviously chaotic to move back across the Atlantic with a family of four, uh, but it's great to be back and see everybody and uh, get back into the debates and uh, engage in ways I haven't been able to from afar. But it's also interesting to see Washington in a new light and how quickly we run the rap wheels that we're running on, the gerbil wheels, um, how fast life moves here, how quickly people want an answer to an email. Germans send you an email and, you you know, they expect an answer a week later. And right. things move a little slower in Europe. Um, and so, yeah, it's we had a great year to reflect and have time as a family, be distant from the political chaos and the toxic uh, environment that we find up on the Hill and elsewhere. But... We miss the United States and we miss seeing our friends and family and, uh, you know, things like spicy salsa. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, so the most important question is, should we have come in with a higher offer for Greenland? <laughs> uh, right, exactly,
2: exactly. I think if we had just upped the ante a little bit. No, that, that was absolutely ridiculous. And uh, I think everybody thought the president was joking, including the Danes. I mean, I, I don't think they were even taking the offer seriously. And then when they realized, in fact, Trump was serious about it, they got the response they got from the prime minister, which I think her quote was, this is absurd. Yeah. But now ruffled feathers and the president's upset and uh, the visit is off. And alas, U.S.-Danish ties are uh, not looking as bright as they once did. And I think Germany's kind of like, you know, a little relieved, like, oh, we're not in the hot seat this week. So. Yeah, I was,
1: you know, I was watching the the news and reading the newspapers this week. And I, I just felt like uh, it was a real life uh, Veep episode that had come to life. And I, I couldn't just figure out what was taking place. And we kind of make light of it, right? Like it's, but, but this is a serious ally. This is a, a NATO partner. I mean, this is, this is, comes with real consequences.
2: Yeah, the dirty little secret about the Danes is, you know, it's a very small country compared to some of the other bigger powers in Europe, um, but it's an incredibly capable ally. Uh, And so in Iraq and Afghanistan, they served side by side with US soldiers and NATO troops. They lost 50 people in those Mm. wars. Uh, And I think we forget how much they put forward. Every time we call Denmark and ask them to do something, the answer is yes and right. will be there tomorrow, right. unlike some of our other allies. Uh, and they don't get enough credit for that, but they're also a very innovative country. Um, they bring a lot of very interesting economic and trade perspectives. They're free traders through and through. And to see this relationship hurt now and ailing is is a real pity because if we're in a pinch, you know, one of the allies you want standing side by side with you are the Danes. Right. And so it's a shame.
1: Totally agree. And. And but you were in Europe during this really interesting time where this was part of the narrative, though, is what's the U.S. approach to Europe? What's yeah. the U.S. approach to NATO? Uh, this constant kind of um, berating of what had been uh, traditionally our stalwart allies and and partners. Uh, I know you say you were removed from the politics a bit and you felt relieved, but uh, you must have been seeing that from the German perspective, from the Europe perspective. Can you just give us a sense of what that was like being in Berlin for a year and, sure. and how how that played out? You know, are is this gonna take years to recover in terms of our reliability and, and how they perceive us?
2: Well, there's definitely been an erosion in the trust between the United States and Germany, and and Germans are just tired. They're tired of being called out all the time. They're tired. All Europeans are tired about the fact that there's no positive or constructive agenda between Europe and the United States right now. Anywhere you look, climate change, our trade relationship, Iran, Russia, China, you name it. We're at odds. And so even in the darkest days of the Iraq War, where there were deep divisions between the United States and and Europe, we still fundamentally had this trade relationship that we could rely on and the values we shared and all the rest. But now what we're seeing is a complete erosion at all levels, at the diplomatic, the military, the economic, the ideological, kind of what we've stood for for 70 years. It's all in decay and Mm. in free fall. And so the mood in Europe, frankly, is... I mean, there's doom and gloom and pessimism and worry, but they're moving on. Mm-hmm. And that's why, back to your mm-hmm. point, Kurt, at the beginning, why I started looking at Asia and China, because what's happening is Europeans are starting to hedge and they're moving Closer to China, not just economically, and you know, interested in BRI and all the opportunities that come with it, but also on the values piece, mm. which is what's fundamentally changed in Europe. Um, so, it's an interesting time, but it's a depressing time to be in Europe. And to your question, Rich, about you know, where do we go from here? I think even if a Democrat walks into the Oval Office in twenty twenty one. I think that person, he or she will find that it's not going to be a situation where you just flick the light on. You know, you're not, it's, there will be some joy and excitement about having a new president in the United States and hope. But there's also this sense of, you know, we can't trust you guys anymore. Executive orders come and go. Congress is a mess. You still don't sign treaties. You know, you're going to have, political chaos in your country for years to come. So again, they're shifting and looking elsewhere.
1: Right. And I, I want to, I know Kurt and I both want to ask you about uh, the European relationship with China and your terrific foreign affairs piece that you've written. But I just want to stay on yeah. the, the German sure. and Europe question for yeah. a second. And especially, you know, what we heard coming out of our own U.S. ambassador to Germany, who said, who questioned whether we would actually have U.S. troops there and has kind of used that as a, if I understand it, I'm just watching from Washington, um, if you don't kind of belly up to the bar with your 2%, you know, we can put those troops elsewhere, Poland or maybe some other more uh, gracious uh, country. Is that really what's being contemplated?
2: Yeah. I mean, our ambassador, unfortunately, our ambassador in Berlin, believes that threatening the Germans is an effective tool. Uh, and so in the case of their support for the Nord Stream pipeline, he has threatened sanctions in that regard. In the case of German defense spending and the fact that the Germans are not supposedly moving the needle fast enough, although I would note that they have increased spending quite significantly, he's threatening moving U.S. troops from Germany to Poland. Um, And in the case of working with Huawei uh, on 5G, the threat there is we will halt intelligence sharing Mm. with Germany if you decide to move forward with this. So the Germans feel... Uh, threatened uh, on multiple fronts, not not just on the defense spending front. But the question is, is that effective? Mm. And I think the proof so far is that we're not moving the needle. The needle's going in the other direction. Germans yeah. are saying, forget it. If you're going to act like that, well, why do you have allies? You're treating us worse than you treat Putin or she or Duterte or, you know, pick your favorite dictator. Um, they feel like a second-class citizen when it comes to people like that. And, uh, yeah. So.
0: So, so, Julie, let me ask you about that. So, I, I agree that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, lot of sand in the gears. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the interesting things we see in some bilateral relationships is that is that some countries have put more on the table with respect to either trade or defense than we got in the past mm-hmm. and i'm afraid the unintended message of that is you know you treat a country with great respect with great dignity And they free ride if you're tough with them that you can get more out of them. I would argue that that short term likely to have more downsides. But still, I think the president is going to point and his allies to some of that, both on the trade and the military side. You have more countries spending more in defense this year than when we left office how do you How do you account for that? How would you respond to
2: that? Well, it's complicated. So on defense spending, I think the President has a point um that he has succeeded in rattling NATO allies uh, to a degree that it's triggered a change. But the truth of the matter is that defense spending in Europe started to dramatically increase after Putin annexed ukraine I so see. For defense spending and the fact that we do see a significant rise in defense spending across the entire continent, there are two people that are responsible for that. Putin had an an impact. But to be fair, Trump also had an impact. And so it is, it's hard. The question is, is there a threshold, a point at which Europeans say we're done with the threats, yeah. and we're not gonna do it also, anymore. Also, Kurt,
1: can I just respond to that a little bit too? Because when I've seen the Trump approach and the rhetoric, it's look what we are doing for you. Look at what our troops are there doing to protect you which is really uh, just such a backward way of looking why our troops are there to begin with. I mean, they are there principally, you know, let's be real. They're there to protect U.S. interests. They're there to advance transatlantic interests. This is not a a charitable exercise that we're involved in. Yeah. I I would just also say, I, I don't know
0: as much about Europe in this respect, but in Asia, I think a lot of countries are spending more not just because they want to have a better relationship with the United States, but they need more independent capability. Sure,
2: sure, yeah. Because
0: they they're heading into an uncertain world. They no, they don't describe that. They don't say, yeah, this world is so unpredictable. So we've got to be able to take care of ourselves. But that's a large part of what animates politicians in Tokyo and I would argue in other parts of Asia as well.
2: Well, that's, that's a great point because that's exactly what's happening in Europe. Now the European Union, after talking about it for 20 years, is actually putting resources behind developing its own defense capabilities. It's not huge sums of money, but it's more than they've ever done in the past. And I think the driver of that is this sense that Europe has to be capable of autonomous action Mm. separate from the United States. But just one more point on the impact of Donald Trump and the threats. I think what's happening is even leaders that know that they have to do more, and I would put Angela Merkel in that camp, she knows she has to spend more on defense, He's creating an environment in which standing side by side with him becomes a political liability, and so for those that want to do the right thing, they start to drift away because they think, okay, politically, I can't afford to be doing this anymore. So I think he could find it backfiring. So so Julie,
0: I mean, so I've heard that, but so uh, so our friends in Denmark is is there part of the body politic, political body politic? that is breathing a sigh of relief that he's not coming or are, is most of it disappointment that, that the president's not arriving?
2: I think, look, even for a president that you may not have the best of a relationship with, any country wants to have a president visit. And for a small country like Denmark, Obviously, they don't get too many presidential visits. Yeah, that's and such so a nasty a, comment, uh, Julie. Nasty, Sorry.
0: Nasty <laughs> <absurd>. <laughs> I, it So
2: it's there, there's some there's 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 no doubt mixed emotions. There's some disappointment, if particularly because they've put all the effort into preparing for it. Um, but yeah, I suppose there are a few people breathing a sigh of relief.
0: Reason that Rich and I put this together is to essentially focus on, on Asia. And one of the things that we're interested in is that you're gonna, you're about to take on a new position that basically explores the changing role of how Europe thinks about China and Asia. It'd be good to just get your sense. So you were not only is the relationship between Germany and the United States in major flux. The relationship between Germany and China is in flux as well. Lots of trade tensions, but also a great desire to take advantage and tap into the dramatic increase in prosperity and possibility in Asia. What did you learn this last year? What did you observe with respect to how Europeans, particularly in Germany, think about the excitement of the 21st century that's playing on in Asia?
2: Well, I think I just timed it by coincidence. I just had a really interesting year there because as I was arriving last summer, a debate was unfolding in Berlin about Germany's relationship with China and Europe's wider set of relationships uh, with China. I think just a few short years ago, Germans looked at China, as many of us have, as a sea of opportunity, particularly on the economic front. And there's no question that Angela Merkel has seized on that. You now have 5,200 German companies operating in China. Um, uh, I think it was in 2017 that China surpassed the United States as Germany's largest trading partner. Um, The relationship has just blossomed. And yet, Over the last year, year and a half, German industry has started raising questions about forced tech transfers and predatory trade practices. You've had politicians and think tankers raising questions about Chinese influence ops and what they're doing across the European continent. The EU is looking a little more closely at investments the Chinese are making. They now own about 10% of the ports in Europe. Uh, And so suddenly there's a different dynamic unfolding. And Merkel herself has changed her positions vis-a-vis China. She now calls them a systemic rival. The EU has put out this white paper, um, which was pretty impressive in the sense that it was able to present a united view on the challenges of working uh, with China. This is all not to say that suddenly Germany wants to Um, weaken in any way or diminish the importance of its relationship with China, but it's looking through a very different set of, of glasses. And for Merkel in particular, for years she was focused on Germany, China, and she has started to understand That she is obviously the weaker partner in that relationship and now wants everything to be done in a frame of Europe, China, Mm. so that in future meetings, you'll remember she came to Europe a few months ago and... Macron welcomed him in Paris with the EU president sitting next to him and with Angela Merkel sitting next to him. Mm. And the idea was, you Chinese, we don't enjoy when you come into Europe and you kind of pick us off individually, which is something, frankly, the United States enjoys doing from time to time. But, but we Julie, want to be dealt with as a block. Yeah, but um, ha,
0: how, I mean, what's interesting about the Chinese is when they can when they see a grouping they're better than any diplomats and country I've ever worked with at splitting, uh, that that grouping. So I, I yeah. was with a senior politician diplomat from a Southeast Asian country, and we were talking about ASEAN, and ASEAN is the organization of Southeast Asian countries. It's been around for decades. But he basically said China um, has split us like a cord of wood, right? Mm. Um, and my experience, if you look at many of the issues that have been divisive on arm sales, issues on the Dalai Lama, on trade, on 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 currency in the G twenty, that China has been able to on a whim basically split Europe. Is is that right?
2: Yeah, and I think that's why Germany in particular, but also France and the UK, they're now very worried about what China has already done. So you take a country like Hungary or Greece to either one, or Portugal. Those are three countries that just have taken... Enormous sums of Chinese support and investment in recent years. And the trade off, as we all know, is often some sort of political favor, or maybe you'll vote a little differently next time. And so essentially, I was interviewing a very senior EU official months ago, and he said to me on the phone, You know, we're in a situation now where. China has a voice inside the European Union. Mm. And it's almost as if they have a vote. And you've seen Hungary and Greece watering down language, mm. EU language on Chinese behavior in the South China Sea. And that has gotten the attention of Angela Merkel and others. Wow. Very let, worried.
1: Me, let me throw one more complicating factor into that. And that's... Um Moscow and, and Putin. Right. And, uh, you know, when I look at the level of, you know, for example, military sales now between Russia and China, Mm Russia is the Mm -hmm. leading provider of, of military equipment. There's, and there's a certain, uh, I don't know if coordination is too strong a word, but, but do you see the two leaders, the two capitals, the two countries coming together to block not only the United States, but now kind of European influence as well?
2: Yeah. I mean, I've heard less about that on the European continent, but certainly it's something that comes up from time to time. But I think there's still so many mixed views to the extent that Europeans are now, some describe it as a strategic awakening on China Mm -hmm. and alert and more so to some of the challenges. Russia's still kind of a different kettle of fish. I mean, Europeans, even within certain countries like Germany, there's a whole array of views on Russia Mm. from those that want a warm embrace and those that want to just cut them off completely or move towards containment or something. So the dialogue and conversation about Russia and China actually is pretty thin, and you don't see a lot of people that bring that expertise. I mean, first and foremost, you see a smaller community in Europe, capable of addressing some of these Asian challenges. And to the extent that they can lash up with the Russia experts who, again, have so many different views on Russia, it's it's not, you don't see as many pieces written on, I've seen a lot in the United States recently. Yeah. I've read a whole collection of really interesting pieces just since I've gotten back, in fact. Um, but You should be unpacking. Not, I should, yeah. sadly. Can I, can I ask you,
1: I want to stay on Russia for a second, I, but I in relation to Turkey. And I will ask it because the Indians are watching what happens with the Russia-Turkey arms sale of the S-400, the... Advanced Missile Defense System right. and the potential for U.S. Uh, sanctions to be put on on Turkey. You know, and I know Merkel has been personally concerned about this and other uh, NATO partners have been trying to get Turkey back on a, on the kind of more of a transatlantic path. Do you have a sense of what's happening there and, and, and is Erdogan just trying to uh, separate himself and what are the consequences of it?
2: I mean, I think the transatlantic partners have essentially succeeded in losing Erdogan. Mm. And um, he is furious with the European Union and promises for decades that they would move ever closer to bringing Turkey into Western institutions. He feels they've underdelivered. But beyond that, ever since the, the attempted coup, he's felt that Europeans in particular, but also Americans, don't take his own security concerns seriously, whether it's his own personal safety mm. or the safety of Turkish mm. citizens. And so he feels like he's been let down time and time and time again by the West uh, and And is willing to roll the dice and take these very high risks, high stakes decisions to move forward with the S-400s, knowing that it could jeopardize not only the relationship with the United States, but with NATO as a whole. So NATO's been scrambling, trying to see send different delegations. The secretary general has been involved. I mean, it's all hands on deck. And the Europeans are very clear eyed about what this could mean. I mean, this is, Turkey's one of the most consequential members of the alliance. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to have the Turks there, but to have a situation where we're not going to be sharing the same equipment. And now we're now going to have very unique set of interoperability challenges. I mean, and then, yeah, with the US threatening F-35s, cooperation in that area will stop. I mean, it's it's terrifying. So I think paired with Brexit and Donald Trump, there just seems like there's a lot going on. Russia's trying to divide Europe. Donald Trump is not a big fan of Europe writ large. The UK, we don't know what the heck is going on over in London. And then the, Turks are just kind of, you know, essentially saying, Seems "We'll tough. take this this purchase yeah. and and take the risk." I'll so be it's, going it's according like, to
0: plan. This, yeah. this yeah. is, yeah. This yeah. is yeah. the time is to offload that, real estate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's right. So that's why the president was thinking. All right. So Julie, let me ask you this. So. One of the things that we've seen the last couple of years is a dramatic increase in Chinese visitors, tourists uh, to, to uh, Europe. We see it across Asia, across the world, generally the biggest increase percentage in tourism of any country in history. So how does that affect Europe generally and what, how does it affect attitudes uh, more broadly?
2: Well, I mean, it's just anecdotal, um, just any insights I would bring. Of course, Europeans are always thrilled to have um, tourists and um, they want the business. And I think, um, you know, I, I can't point to any specific issues or problems. You, They are ever present. Anywhere you go, you see them. There is a bit of an overcrowding issue, kind of writ large, that I wouldn't attribute just to the Chinese, but you now see cities grappling with the crush of tourists. And there are places that I went 20 years ago, Barcelona, for example, where you could walk up and visit all the major sites. Now everything's a timed entrance, and you get long (laughs) snaking lines. But you look around and see many of the people in those lines are from Asia. (laughs) Uh, So it is a changed environment. But the degree to which Europeans feel like, um, I don't know, they're disappointed or frustrated or worried. I mean, it seems like it's less about Chinese tourists and more just about the crowds. I don't know. That's just my own.
0: So Julie, when you were doing your introduction about how Europeans think about China, you said that they, so I understand the part where they're more vigilant now about intellectual property and the like, but you said that they're being drawn a little bit to maybe the model of Chinese power, you know, sort of certain aspects of what we might call technological authoritarianism that that's counterintuitive to me to be honest i can imagine some european states that are more conservative being attracted to those models more generally but the dominant countries i would have thought would be wanting to take full advantage of economic opportunities but a little bit wary and worried about influence and the like and wanting to retain you know, kind of a political system that is not influenced by, you know, some of the things that China stands for. Is is that accurate?
2: No, no. So I, it's not that the Europeans now find great appeal in the political model that the Chinese are presenting. But what's really interesting is how the Chinese are seizing on this moment where Europe and the United States are not really getting along. And the Chinese and Chinese firms and Chinese scholars are making a values debate, an argument that I haven't heard before. So I'll Let's give you an example. I was on a panel with a Chinese scholar in front of about two or 300 people a couple of months ago. And the Chinese scholar got up and said to the German audience, what you Germans don't need is a partner like this. And he points to me, uh, I don't know, trying to make the argument somehow that I represented the Trump administration. And he said, Americans don't believe in climate change. That's a big one for the Germans. They're not multilateralists, another key word for the Germans. They're not a stabilizing actor. They're a destabilize. They're a disruptor. They don't share the values that we Chinese share with you. And I almost fell off my chair. Wow. Um, but I I, I wasn't shocked so much by what he was saying. I've heard some of those arguments from time to time. What killed me that night was when I looked out in the audience and I saw a few heads nodding. Right, right. And then I thought, oh boy. So back to your original question, what's it going to feel like to try to rebuild this relationship? Right. Mm. After eight years, mm. I mean, we're going to have a lot of work to do because the Chinese are everywhere yeah, not, and they're starting to make that. We're argument. not seeding Yeah, It's yeah. yeah. four Sorry. years. Let's, I, let's, I, yeah, let's, I let, maybe I'm and too and pessimistic. So, we'll go so, two and a half. So, Julie, okay. may I ask
0: one and then Rich will do the last question? Let me ask you just about expertise. So, when I was at the State Department, I started to do these dialogues with the Europeans about Asia. And I was struck by a couple of things. One, It was hard to penetrate the dominant agenda. At the time, we were talking a lot about Iraq, uh, Iran, Syria, even the the Balkans and climate change. And so so it was always the sixth or seventh agenda when people were already thinking about going to the sumptuous lunch and (laughs) were not as... Interested with wine, yeah, with yeah. wine. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the days, yeah. I, Julie, you're back now. You water for you. No,
2: no more. Yeah, no more booze, yeah.
0: Um, So I was struck at how hard it was, and there was a small coterie of experts who liked getting together, but they were really not very prominent in their own bureaucracies. I, I want to ask you: Is that changing? And also, is there an expertise? There are obviously people who know how to sell cars in China, or in Europe, but is there a real understanding of the history and the dynamics and the cultural dynamics of this very complex region? What's your view on that, Joe?
2: Uh, I think it's changed since you were working to engage and. Um, some of the people that I've met with recently in Brussels still look fondly at the uh, back at that time with you and trying. They remember you coming to town trying to That's engage them. It's such a lie. It's but not. <laughs> it's it's not at all. It's not at all. Could give you names, um, but so so. I guess what I would say is the the community is getting bigger, but it's not deep enough and not present enough. Now, the United States could have an impact on that if we were sending over delegations on a regular basis and trying to engage them. But what we do is we come over and say, ban Huawei, and we'll see you in a couple of months. And it's a very light touch. Um, I know there have been some delegations that have gone over. The NSC has sent a couple of teams. Um, There's some great people over at State that have given it a go. But Europeans are waiting to be engaged on the wider set of challenges, and no one has come with a strategy to say, this is how we see how we could work together. And that's a missed opportunity. Um, But to your point, Kurt, it is an open question about how many people would you even call if you did have that type of interest here on our side of the Atlantic. It is and remains a very small community of people.
1: Before we break, I want to ask you a question about uh, you and and your career, and specifically being in the national security field as a as a woman. And um, you know, I've been fortunate to work for Hillary Clinton and Madeline Albright, and we've had you know Sam Power and Susan Rice, and in the you know when John Kerry was Secretary of State, I think about maybe five undersecretaries that were uh, women at at the time, but. You know, those are great success stories. They've been role models for, for all of us. Michelle was, a, Flournoy was at, at Defense. Uh, but it is hard being a woman in, in the national security field. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. And, and
2: how much time do you have? Yeah, right. I know we shouldn't have <laughs> saved it for the for the
1: end. And just what we can do to change that um, dynamic. And I know there's a terrific new organization, the Leadership Council for Women in National Security. Uh, there are other efforts, or new, you know, Alyssa Slotkin and others are in Congress now. But give us your personal experience and and just kind of what do we need to be aware of going into in, into this into the future.
2: Well, I think, um, you know, women have made many, many strides over the years, and women have blazed trails like the women you just mentioned, others on the other side of the aisle, Condi Rice. I mean, we've seen many women on the left and the right make their way into the national security field. And so for someone like me, I saw women succeeding, and I had role models. But as I arrived on the scene uh, in the Obama administration, uh, at the Pentagon, and then at the White House, I, I certainly encountered in my mind, unique challenges that women face uh, that men do not, and they run the gamut. It can be unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. People don't even know what they're saying, can be misinterpreted, it can feel offensive. Um, there's hiring practices, men hiring men that look and talk like they do go to the same school, very common. There's Blatant sexual harassment and discrimination, sexism. Um, It can go from, you know, something that is not... um you know, reason to leave your job, all the way up to forcing a woman out of of the field, feeling like she is now compelled to leave. Uh, and so, what I've done is to try now, as I make my way uh, through my career, to talk to younger women, to check in with them regularly, to say, "How's it going? What are you encountering?" and a couple years ago, Michelle Flournoy and I, along with some other women, convened informally a group at CNAS. We had, you know, maybe 60 women around the table and just took a snapshot. What does it look like? The NSC, DOD, The Hill, media, private sector. And the stories that we heard were very disheartening. Mm. Uh, women still feel um, that they are not being heard, that they don't have a sponsor or a mentor, People are still saying things that are inappropriate. Um, You're still asked to go get the coffee. You're Mm -hmm. asked if you're assistant when you're delivering the keynote, Mm -hmm. Um, the snide remarks, the jokes in the office. I've joined forces with other women uh, over the years to do things informally and formally. And this new LC Wins group that we just created is yet another attempt to raise some of these issues, alert people to the challenges, to provide support to younger women coming up through the ranks, but also to enlist. Uh, the help of folks like you. I mean, I had the good fortune to work for Kurt and who was a great mentor to me. Not everyone has had a mentor like that, uh, particularly a male mentor. Uh, and so I, I just trying to I make it kind of almost a daily part of what I mm. do to be thinking about ways in which we can call out the manuals, the conferences. I mean, you still see occasionally an agenda that's just all men speaking from nine to six. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, all white men, you know, with no diversity whatsoever uh, of any sort. So I'm trying to make it part of what I do and what I think about. And even though it's not my full-time job um, to join with other women to see what we can do to make a difference.
1: Yeah. It's so important. And you yourself have been a great role model to so many others and and we will continue to highlight this issue we've talked about on the show before and and we'll continue to to make it a a, uh an issue that people focus on
0: yeah Julie, that was terrific. Thank you so much. And we wish you well uh, on your return back to the United States. We're excited about your new responsibilities. We'll want an update on that pretty soon. And I think it's a rich field to explore how Europe uh, and Asia, particularly China, are engaging and what the role the, the United States plays in that.
1: So thank you so much for joining us today. We really enjoyed it. We learned a lot. Yeah, Julie, thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, or wherever you you get your podcast and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.